Thank you, James. Robert? Was it Robert James or is it Robbie or James or? What a blessing to have you back on the piano bench. Appreciate that. Well, Merry Christmas. Did everybody have a blessed Christmas celebration? Okay, so what? let's see, what did you get? How many got um, food gift certificates for Christmas? Food gift certificates. Mm-hmm. How many got like merchandise uh, gift certificates? Just a few. Like, how about Lowe's? Yeah. Lowe's. Home Depot. I didn't get any of those. Did anybody get a Home Depot? Oh, okay. How many got clothing for Christmas? How, that's a lot. How many got like any kind of musical instrument or something that you... Yeah, there's a few out there. Drake, I'm curious. I'm sorry, but... I got a saxophone. Saxophone. And I... Nice. And I know Nisi got a new guitar. Um, what else? How many got jewelry for Christmas? Nice. All right. How about lastly, technology, like a computer or some. Oh, OK. Lots of technology. Well, sounds like everybody. How many worshiped Christ for Christmas? Hey, there we go. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week. By the way, we're in Matthew chapter 18, but I mentioned last week for our Christmas service that for me personally, one of the reasons I think I like Christmas so much is because our whole culture gets behind it. And I know that not everybody does it for the right reasons. Um, and it, it is it does become secularized for sure. But for me, it's exciting and I see that as a good thing. And it's OK if you don't and if you're. In the group that says Christmas is ruined and we shouldn't do it anymore because it's become so paganized or secularized. That's okay. But for me, I I just like the fact that everybody gets excited about it. And it's so rich in symbolism. The thing about Christmas, if you think about it, is what makes it so dynamic and what makes it so special is that it's uh, people cooperate in it. There's a sense in which you've got to play the game, so to speak. There are things that our culture wants out of Christmas. And in order to get the things that I think even though it's secularized, there's still this expectation that Christmas is a season of glad tidings. It's a time to be jolly. And so we, we gather with family. Um, and I think it's intention for the most part, people would agree. There's something about the season, even if you don't believe in Christ, it's supposed to something about it is supposed to bring the best out of us. And so we give and we receive and we kind of put our best foot forward. Uh, we we try to think of others, what would be a blessing to others, what would bring joy to others. And usually a lot of times we gather over a meal or go out and, and have a meal together. And, and we um, we call people close to us. And so there's this expectation. But in order for Christmas to be something special, we have to put time into it. We have to even put our budget behind it. We have to make personal sacrifices. In other words, Christmas wouldn't be special at all, with or without, say, the Christ child in it. But it wouldn't be special at all if we didn't set it aside and invest ourselves in it. It would be just like any other day of the year. Or, as C.S. Lewis would say, Winter, always winter, but never Christmas. 
But the reason it's special is because even for the wrong reasons, people get behind it. They put themselves into it. And that's what that's why it, it maintains this unique uh, time of blessing. There's a sense in which our passage today in Matthew 18, and we won't get very far today because it's so packed, but there's a sense in which when we look at the kingdom of God, it's, it operates the same way. We have to see, and this will be a, a teaching about the kingdom of God, we have to see the kingdom of God as this incredibly special, unique gift that has been given to us by Christ the mediator from heaven. And in order for it to be so unique and special, we have to play along, so to speak. We have to accommodate the king. We have to accommodate his ways. We have to put our time. We have to make sacrifices. We even got to accommodate our budget for the kingdom of God to operate among us. If we just treat the kingdom of God and the teachings of God as just mundane, ordinary things then we would have nothing unique to offer to the world. We would just operate like the status quo. And so I want us just to consider the, the teachings this morning as something that is very special, but as something that we not only need to hear, but we need to apply. We need to accommodate ourselves to the king. But we're children of the king. We're servants of the king. Reminds me of Paul. I think it's in... Second uh, Corinthians four or five, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ is Lord and ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. It's accommodating ourselves and seeing ourselves in light of the kingdom as his little children that slave away for our God because it's our duty, but because we want to do it out of gratitude. In God's eyes, we're we're his little children. And this is a block of teaching where the kingdom and the king of the kingdom is going to um, teach us how to live our lives. He's going to teach us things we can and can't do, thoughts we can and can't think, ways we can and can't look at one another and relate to one another. The whole chapter is packed with that kind of teaching. John MacArthur goes so far as to say that it's the single greatest discourse that our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people of his church. So this this passage, this whole chapter actually really kind of gets down to the nitty gritty of what the kingdom of God looks like in the lives of the redeemed. And if we don't apply it, then we we won't look any different than those that do not have the joy of the Lord as their strength. So this whole passage, I have to warn you, is is going to require great sacrifice. And and, and it'll take us several weeks to get through it. It's going to require that we put ourselves behind it in order to, to bring it to life, in order to benefit from the blessings of heaven. It's a teaching largely on how do we get along with one another? How do we handle one another in our imperfect state, our imperfect selves? What do we do with how life gets messy even among believers when we sin against each other? 
This is the chapter, we won't get this far, but this is a chapter that Jesus takes to a radical place. And, and he says, does this thing work? This okay, I'll try this. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, he, he, get, he gets real radical and dramatic. And it's the chapter that talks about if you're, if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. I notice we all have our hands here this morning. Does that mean we love sin? Don't take that literally. We'll get to that later on. And, and, and it's woe to you if you cause a child of God to sin and abandon the faith, to leave the faith, to think of God differently. Woe to you. It would be better for you to... To tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. What's going to happen? So, so it, it's all about how we view one another. Uh, who's going to let, allow sin to dominate their lives? Or who's going to share their sin with other children of God? And it talks to us about how do we confront one another with our sin? Is that something that we should do as a regular practice? And what does that even look like? Because you know that there is sin in the church. So what does the kingdom teach about? Well, what do we do? Do we just brush it under the carpet? If we see our brother who's offended us, um, what do we do? And he'll teach us about that. That's the chapter on church discipline. So the, 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 the chapter is just packed with kingdom Teaching and it's meant for us. It's meant. It's a discourse on how we are to look at one another and treat one another. And if we apply this, if we take it to heart and we apply it, the kingdom becomes very special and very unique. Not only to us, but to a watching world that hungers for the very things that the kingdom teaches us about the things that will soothe our souls so we'll look at this over the next couple of weeks. And honestly, I don't think I'm going to make it to our second point even this morning as I was just praying over this this morning uh, and, and, and thinking through these principles. It was as if uh, the Spirit just said, just stop right there at point one. That doesn't mean I can't drag it out to 45 minutes. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that <clears throat> for, I, I just think for whatever reason, this is we need to just leave or or. Or depart from here with this teaching on our mind and not even get into the second teaching of it. The whole chapter is driven by this conversation. Um, actually, a question that Jesus' disciples wind up asking him. They ask him this question and he uses that as a springboard and he just goes into this really deep, rich teaching on Christian relationships. And the question that the disciples asked, we'll read it in just a few seconds, but the questions the disciples or the questions the disciples asked Jesus was, who is the greatest in the kingdom? That's what they want to know. And so they asked the king, who is the greatest in this kingdom that you have established? We're a part of it. Which one of us? Or who is the greatest? Just for fun, I googled greatness or great leaders. And there was this um, thing called the Ranker Survey. 
And it labeled uh, 100 greatest leaders of all time. George Washington was the first. Abraham Lincoln was the second. Jesus was number 18, just behind Winston Churchill. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar II was number 46. Uh, Chief Crazy Horse was number 91. And William of Orange, a Dutch leader, he was number 100, the last. Greatness. How do you obtain greatness and what is it? Um, Alexander the Great. I did a research paper on Alexander the Great. How do you get the great behind your name so that you're just not known as Alexander throughout history, but Alexander the Great or Peter the Great, the Russian leader or Catherine the Great? What is greatness? How do you consider it? Who do you consider? Whom do you consider? Now, that is greatness. That's a great person. So how do you measure it? How do you get it? Well, let's look at the kingdom view of greatness. Um, And we may only make it to the first five verses, but that's okay. Let's see. At that time, chapter 18, verse one, disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, based on this teaching, it's no wonder to me that Jesus only made it to number 18 on this survey, this list. I think it's because uh, perhaps people, maybe the world, maybe the kingdom of God for sure, measures greatness with a different standard, a different measuring stick of if I if I put you up to this measuring stick, there's a different type of stick or standard, I think that the kingdom uses when it comes to judging or discerning a person's greatness as opposed to what the world uses. I think that disciples were likely thinking in worldly terms. They're evaluating themselves. And it gets a little more interesting than even that question, because Mark's gospel in Mark chapter nine tells us a little more detail about how all this went down. Matthew doesn't go into it, but Mark does. They didn't just ask Jesus, who is the greatest? Before they asked him, they were arguing about it. They, they got in a heated conversation and discussion about who is the greatest. So Mark Uh, Chapter 9, verse 33, they came to Capernaum and he was in when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Why would he ask in verse 34? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, cracks me up because here's Jesus asking them, oh, by the way, guys, 
What was that conversation you were having on the way? That's what they did. They were silent. As if silence gets you off the hook. They, they knew they were guilty. They knew they were busted. He, he heard them. Raise, apparently they raised their voice. I mean, it was a, a full pledge, a full pledged argument. They thought maybe silence would get them off the hook. But eventually they just they break out and ask him. I mean, he already knows. So they say. They let him in. Well, we want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. Everybody knows that kingdoms have hierarchies. There are people that are above others. And it is a good thing to know, I guess. Well, who gets to be on the top? Because the people on the top get to boss the people in the middle and then the people on the bottom around. The people in the middle get to be in charge or boss or overpower, have authority over those on the bottom. And then the people on the bottom get to cop an attitude against the people in the middle and the top. It all is just this beautiful harmony that takes place of the hierarchies. But in order for things to run smoothly, there's a sense that people have to be in charge and people are given certain positions. Of course, the world and the kingdom of God works in different ways, but that's how they function. And they want to know who is the greatest, not who will be. This is a present day argument that they're in. I don't know what precipitated it, possibly because, you know, Peter gets singled out sometimes. I mean, he made this great confession and upon you, the church of God will be built. Maybe they were arguing about uh, Peter was saying it. Well, obviously, it's going to be me. You heard what Jesus said to me when I made that confession. Yeah, but it wasn't from you. It was from the Lord. Don't forget, Peter. That doesn't matter. Or maybe they were uh Arguing because it was only like the inner circle, Peter, James and John. Only those three out of 12 got to go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe they're the greatest. So they're they're literally vying for power. We talked this morning about in Sunday school a little about it in Philippians about envy and strife. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, they had the same thing, even within ministry. And he says they're doing it for a wrong motive. But as long as the truth is pure, just let the message go out. God will deal with that wrong motive. So they're vying. There's there's jealousy. There's envy. There's strife. here. They're trying to figure out who stands where. Kind of who gets to boss the other one. The rubber hits the road. That's a legitimate thing. But that's what they're arguing about. And already there's strife. In this question. So I don't know what precipitated it. But Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity. And rather than telling them a parable. Which he frequently does. He actually uses a prop. And so Jesus is surrounded by people. He's teaching. And uh, maybe he's in, in the house there. But there are children there. So he says, hey, you kid. Come here. You with the dimples. Come on up here. He puts them in the middle. There. So he has a child and apparently it's a him. And um, he uses him as an object lesson. So he's in the middle. Everybody is that is wondering how Jesus is going to answer this question. They have to look at this child. So he has this child. Here as a prop. To teach a lesson, he kind of showcases him. And he says to the crowd. As they look at this child, no doubt. Unless you turn 
and become like children. You can't even enter into the kingdom of God. Have you turned? Have you ever considered yourself in those terms? Have you turned? Have you become this morning? What is it that Jesus is after? What is he teaching here? He takes the conversation quickly from, they're talking about who's the biggest. And now all of a sudden it's not even answering the question, who's the biggest? He takes it down to the the foundation and he says, there's no need to even argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom because you're not even in it to begin with unless you turn and become like this child. The word become is the same word for uh, conversion. It's a transformation. You have to change. You have to be converted. You have to have that, that real life experience where you have given your heart to the grace of God and He's changed it. Or you're not even in. So there's no need to talk about or even think about, well, what's my position going to be? Where do I stand in here? If you don't convert, you can't get in. And Jesus, they're talking about who's the biggest. And Jesus redirects this conversation and their, their lofty thoughts of perhaps how high they're going to go up into this hierarchy. And he brings them immediately down to smallness. You got to think small in that sense to even get into the kingdom. You have to see yourself in a certain light. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It always amazes me in the bulletin, our our um, our truth from the royal treasury is in Matthew 11, I think 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. How does he describe himself? He says, I'm what? You can cheat if you need to look at the bulletin. He describes himself as something. He says, I am lowly and humble. Look how Jesus describes himself. I'm lowly. I'm humble. I am your source of rest. You would think just the opposite. The reason I can shed myself of my burdens is because of his showcase, his greatness, And yet he says, I'm humble. That's why you're safe with me. I'm lowly. That's why you can find rest. He's describing himself exactly in this metaphor that he's using here with this child. We have to be uh, a little careful here. I do admit when we think about how do we apply this, because we might all have different. um, I'm sure we all agree on some things about children, but what? We have different perceptions of children, so we want to be careful that we don't take the metaphor way too far and go out of bounds, but we want to make sure that we we take it far enough. So there are things, if you think about this child there, what is he referring to? Because there are things about children that we don't want to be like. We've we've been there and done that, and now we're over, you know, we're, we're, we matured out of it. So is he talking about you need to become real fidgety? Like in church, you know, and all you want to do is play and you can't focus for more than five seconds in one thing or you pick your nose in public. You know, what what is he after in these childlike attributes or is it 
children are just so cute. Is it that you have to be as cute as a child? I mean, just look at this little guy. Look at the freckles. Look at the dimples. Is it that you have to become cute? What attributes of a child? Well, he tells us it's it's the humility. It's this mindset. Children have a certain demeanor, character. They look at each other and they look at the world. They look at adults in a certain way and they behave in a certain way based on that. So you don't have to be cute. It's the smallness. Actually, and, and it's it's the dependency, it's the helplessness. So they're talking about who's great, who's the most capable and Jesus grabs a child. I mean, who does that? Have you ever read any book anywhere that has teaching on being great leadership skills where somebody grabs a child and says, here's the example of greatness? I mean, who does that? But Jesus immediately takes their mind to smallness, not meanness in that sense. So children, they have to recognize something about themselves. Children do recognize something about themselves. They're dependent on others. I think it's neat that a lot of times uh, we envy children. Have you, you've heard the expression, I wish I, they sleep like a baby. And, or he doesn't have a care in the world. The reason that many children, it's not true from all children, sadly. But for many children, we can say, you know, you don't have a care in the world. The reason is because you're so well cared for. You can't say that about a child. You don't have a care in the world if they're not well cared for. But if they're well cared for, man, I don't have to cut the grass. Dad does that. I don't have to cook the meals. Mom does that. I don't have to do the laundry. My big sister does that. Man, life is just great. I don't have to pay the bills. The money just comes in and dad gets me changed and he lets me buy. You know, I don't have a care in the world. All of the important things of life, somebody else takes care of them for me. So that I can do the things that I'm supposed to do as a child. I can dream. I can think. I can play. I can be imaginative and creative. I'll have a care in the world. Jesus is always calling us to himself. And wants us actually in a sense to live that way. By trusting in his good care. That's why he says, don't even worry about tomorrow. I know clothes and food and that stuff, you got to have it to live. I get it. Don't even worry about it. The only way we can actually not worry about that stuff in real life is if we trust our father that much. To be such a good caregiver that we don't have a care in the world. We're not carrying the unnecessary burdens. And that's one of the ways that Jesus gives us that rest. He relieves us of the burdens that we do not need to carry because he's so good. We want to be in control, though. We want to be in control. We want to know, is that money still going to be there in 2019? And is this still going to be there in these relationships? And so we want to kind of set ourselves up. And so we worry ourselves to death trying to set ourselves up and be in control. And Jesus said, but I care for you. I, I've got these. There's things in, that I just have for you so you don't have to worry about this. Children just have a, a different way of looking at life. Jesus is referring to the smallness, the baseness, the dependency that they have. They don't have clout. They don't have greatness. Now, we're a very, very child-centered society. And um, we constantly give our children attention. Uh, 
But it wasn't that way in the days of Jesus. I mean, children had no rights in that day. They had no clout. They, they were um, often seen as a nuisance. Like they just kind of knew their place. And their place was to, to get out of the way of the adults and the important people. Don't ever cross anybody. And they were stay that way. The important things are for the grown-ups. So the least and the greatest. So that's the connection. It's that humility, seeing yourself, seeing your, yourself in a real place in this world. Where do I really stand in the sight of God? What, what is my worth based on that? What is my place in the kingdom based on the way God sees me? And I have to trust his goodness and I have to be humble and small, poor in spirit, as Jesus said in um, the Beatitudes. If we think we're something special, and that was the problem with the disciples, they already thought they were something special. Too special. If we think we're something special, we're going to have a hard time in the kingdom of God if we even get in that way. If we think we bring our own greatness into it, we've missed the point. The kingdom operates on grace and the king is the great one. We've got to realize our place in this world. So Jesus is trying to, to teach him that. And he doesn't say, by the way, uh, teenager, come here and stand in front he doesn't use the example of a teenager. And I thought about that, you know, when I was a teenager, you're still dependent on mom and dad, but you're kind of using them a little bit because you still need them to feed you and put gas in the car. But you got your license now and you have independence. You're kind of halfway there and you're learning to think on your own and you're learning that some of the things that you were told as a child aren't true. And these but you're, you're, you're developing your own greatness and your own dependence. And he doesn't say, come you can't get um, you have to be like a child. He doesn't say you have to be like a teenager because that's kind of halfway split in the difference. You just have to know. Nope, you're completely dependent on your heavenly father, not just partly. You got to know you're bankrupt. So humility, that's how you get in and that's how you measure greatness. And there's this expectation in verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So. Disciples receive other disciples based on their belief in Christ, based on who they are in Christ, based on the fact that God is your father. So there's a sense of we're going to do away without the worldly measure measuring standard and stick. That's not how we're going to look at one another in in kingdom living. We're going to look at one another as children of God because Christ has set his affection on us. And that's our worth. That's what we bring to the table. Was it Jeremiah 9, 23, a paraphrase, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his richness, riches. But let him who boasts, boast that he knows and loves me. I'm probably missing some of that. That's what's so look at what's so important in the kingdom of God. It's not. What you do in the world or who you think you are, what you've acquired. It's just knowing God, belonging to God is all the greatness that you would ever need. And so he's calling us to look at one another, to relate to one another, to think about greatness in kingdom terms, which is actually smallness, which is actually lowliness and humility. 
valuing each other for who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, not what we brought in. And that child analogy, by the way, actually applies throughout the rest of the chapter. From this point on, whenever the word word children is used by Jesus, he's not even talking about this literal child anymore. He's talking about the children of the kingdom. Very, very important. And you'll see how that plays out as we continue. So this chapter is a teaching for the church. It's how the kingdom is different from the world. Remember, I opened where, you know, you have to put yourself behind things. You have to invest in things in order for them to work, in order for them to remain unique. So this is something that we have to apply ourselves to. We have to purpose to look at one another with this view to be this metaphor, to live this metaphor of lowliness in order to be the kingdom of God and the people of God. And it's it's different than what you find in the world. There's a stark contrast and it's meant to be that. But we have to invest in ourselves in this or people come and they visit or they're they're wondering about faith and Christians and this thing about love. And then immediately they're just hit with that that strife and that tension and that rivalry that the disciples were experiencing and arguing about. So we have to see him. And trust completely. Good question to ask is where are we in life today? Are we trying to measure up? Even in the church and as Christians, we can slip right back into that rut. And try to be measuring up. And it wears us out. They did it. We are prone to it. The the king doesn't say measure up. He says bow down in adoration. Receive my gift. It's, it's grace. It's just something you receive. It's given to you. You never measured up for it. God gives it. So what's the big deal about this question? Why would they even argue about it? Well, for same reasons that we would argue about it. We want to know who's in charge. We want to know who we have to answer to. You know, you leave the house. You, you, as parents, you go on a date night. You have kids of all different ages. Which one is in charge? Who do I have to answer to? But there's a right way and a wrong way to to look at this. The scripture says that if you've been God does raise and he does lower, but it's it's just how God wants to use you in life has nothing to do with your greatness. It's a gift. It's something he does. Isn't it interesting that already in this in this um, community, this fellowship of disciples, They're arguing it. Did you see the effect it had? You start talking about who's the best, who's the greatest, and already envy, strife, and rivalry are there. And that's what the world offers. Think about it. If you're going to, how do you even get power? Well, you do, you do that. You argue your way into it. You push your way into that position. You got to slam your fist on the table and stomp your foot on and push everybody else on the way and step on people's heads and everything to get up to the top. That's how you do it. You, you push, you force, you're aggressive. You argue your way to the top. That's how you get there. And it causes a mess. It causes strife and anxiety. That's what they're doing. Already. You got to fight for it. Of course, when you get to the top, it's not as fun as you think it is because you stepped on so many people. You can't trust anybody to be loyal to you because you have been disloyal to them, perhaps. So rather than building it on trust and integrity and just acknowledging, well, God has me in this position. It's built on your own fleshly desires. 
I'm, I'm reminded, and I'm not a sports fan, but there was a, uh, hopefully you guys will know this because I don't, never even saw the guy, but I read this article. His, his last name is, it's uh, Drew Holiday. He's a bat, great NBA player for the, something Pelicans, New Orleans Pelicans. Anyway, I'm not getting um, nods out there. I got a couple, yeah. Anyway, he, he's just, just an outstanding player, but he's a, he's a Christian. So he's way up here in the world's eyes. And in this interview, he says, I see that God has put me in this platform so that I can be a witness for Christ. That's how he's using it. It's not to enjoy the spotlight. He realizes his place in the world is, I'm not great. I, God put me here so that I can be a witness, so I can be a light. And he has a heart for young kids that all they see is violence in this world. And he says, I just want to be a picture of goodness as Christ shines through me. I think that's a good, healthy way to use where God has placed us. Rather than climbing over people. The children don't understand that social status. So if, if I, for fun, interviewed some of the kids in here this morning, I didn't take the time to do it. But if I said, like, Ryan K. And you don't have to answer. But if I said Ryan K. or Mariah or, uh, is, or where's John? He's not here. Oh, ah. Dad, what are you doing, John? What are you doing down there? What's he doing? Drinking water. All right. So if I would say, like, who's the most important person in the world? Who would you say? I mean, if you wanted to play the game, I didn't plan on you, but I mean, if you're willing to, I mean, who's the most, somebody's whispering answers to his ears. Mariah, who's the most important person in the world, maybe? Who? You can never go wrong with that answer. 90% of the time. It, It does fail you sometime, though, based on the question. But you would say, God, but who's the most important person in this church today? Most important. They don't know. I'm not getting a lot of answers. It's hard. You got everyone. Good answer. Very good. In other words, really, you probably hadn't you probably hadn't thought about it. Like you didn't come to church this morning thinking along those terms of greatness and importance. Or, you know, I like this person because they get to boss 50 people every day at work. That the kids don't think along those terms. That the whole idea of the social ladder and the social status. You know what kids most of the time think about? They, they, your, your figures, your financial figures aren't going to impress them. Or the fact that you get to boss people around. That's not, what will impress them is if you care for them. They want to know how you view yourself. Are you going to be this person that comes into my life that brings your, your little uppity strife and envy? You're going to want my toys and you're always going to want your way. Or do you actually care about me? That's usually what is on the mind of kids. The safety. How do you view yourself? Because it's important. They don't think of it in those terms. But if you're going to be that selfish kid. And how are you going to treat me? Are you just using me? Are you just coming over because I got a four, I got an electric car for Christmas and you just want to drive it till the battery goes dead? Or you actually want to be my friend? They really think along. That's what makes them feel safe. And you know, some of that is what Jesus is teaching. What are you really in it for? It's the real you. You know, you can't fake kingdom ways. You can't fake this kind of mindset of looking. It, the, the truth is going to slip out. 
how we really view one another. It will be exhausting to try to fake the Christian life. The Bible does not recommend that at all. Make, make it real. Adopt it as your own. The whole world, every culture has the same struggle that the disciples did. And it causes strife and dissension. And it, it, dis, it disconnects people. It doesn't unify people, this kind of thinking. It totally puts us in different categories. I don't know that our culture, and of course, I'm, 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 only, uh, I'm still a young buck, but in relative terms. But um, I don't know that our culture has ever been so fragmented. It is so tender, so volatile because of the idea of classifying people based on uh, their wealth or based on their race or based on their political views. Like you can't do anything right in our culture anymore. You're you're automatically look if you just put this label, you just are labeled. It's not even about who you really are. I don't have to know anything about you. But if you put Democrat in front of your name, that's all I need to know. So all, all these kind of things, Republican, Democrat, the politics, the, the money, uh, the prestige. We are we are such a fragmented, volatile culture because we don't look at one another in, in any kind of way of value. It's all about things or power or beliefs. And so we don't even appreciate what we could actually bring to the table. And what we could do to work together. It's just all thrown out because of sin. So the whole world has this. You know, the rich society too. We start, we get to a certain place and we think, I deserve to be here. We forget that God put us there. And then we look down our noses at other people and treat them a certain way. It happened in the church. In Acts, it, before even Paul was even on the pages, it happened. This classification of different people. So no matter, as we wind down, no matter our rank in life, the idea is that's not how the church works. That's not how the redeem are to look at one another. If there's this classification, if, if there's immediately pegging somebody or viewing somebody because you saw this label in front of their name or after their name or whatever it is, that's not how we're deeper than that. We're richer than that. We're truer than that. We look at people for who they are in Christ you're my brother. You're my sister. And that's what we have in common. No matter where you work or what you drive to work. That's not the thing we focus on. It's what we have in common in Christ in the family of God. That's what scripture says. So we are choosing as New Covenant Fellowship not to look at one another like that. And when we, we can create this atmosphere where people can come. And just feel safe like that child. Just want to know, what do you think about yourself? How big and important do you think you are? Because if you think you're that big and important, there's going to be strife. And it's going to be a hard relationship. But we can create this kingdom relationship right here among ourselves. Just by accommodating Christ the King in our lives in this way. Not to be fragmented like the world. So let's turn and become like the child, lowly and humble. That's our duty and that's our great joy and our great privilege this morning. May God bless the preaching of his word.